Section 12 of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dignity. Colonel Ingersoll said at Omaha the other day that he hated a dignified man and that he never knew one who had a particle of sense, that such men never learned and were constantly forgetting something. Josh Billings says that gravity is no more the sign of mental strength than a paper collar is the evidence of a shirt. This leads us to say that the man who ranks as a dignified snoozer and banks on winning wealth and a deathless name through this one source of strength is in the most unenviable position of anyone we know. Dignity does not draw. It answers in place of intellectual tone for twenty minutes, but after a while it fails to get there. Dignity works all right in a wooden Indian or a drum major, but the man who desires to draw a salary through life and to be sure of a visible means of support will do well to make some other provision than a haughty look and an air of patronage. Colonel Ingersoll may be wrong in the matter of future punishment, but his head is pretty level on the dignity question. Dignity works all right with a man who is worth a million dollars and has some doubts about his suspenders, but the man who is to get a large sum of money before he dies and get married and accomplish some good must place himself before his fellow men in the attitude of one who has ideas that are not too lonely and isolated. Let us therefore aim higher than simply to appear cold and austere. Let us study to aid in the advancement of humanity and the increase of bailed information. Let us struggle to advance and improve the world, even though in doing so we may get into ungraceful positions and at times look otherwise than pretty. Thus shall we get over the ground, and though we may do it in the eccentric style of the camel, we will get there as we said before, and we will have camped and eaten our supper while the graceful and dignified pedestrian lingers along the trail. Works, not good clothes and dignity, are the grand hailing sign, and he who halts and refuses to jump over an obstacle because he may not do it so as to appear as graceful as a gazelle, will not arrive until the festivities are over. A Snort of Agony our attention has been called to a remark made by the New York Tribune, which would intimate that the journal referred to didn't like acting postmaster F. Hatton, and characterizing the editor of the Boomerang as a journalistic pal of General Hatton's. We certainly regret that circumstances have made it necessary for us to rebuke the Tribune and speak harshly to it. Frank Hatton may be a journalistic pal of ours. Perhaps so. We would be glad to class him as a journalistic pal of ours, even though he may not have married rich. We think just as much of General Hatton as though he had married wealthy. We can't all marry rich and travel over the country and edit our papers vicariously. That is something that can only happen to the blessed few. It would be nice for us to go to Europe and have our pro-tem editor at home working for $20 per week, and telegraphing us every few minutes to know whether he should support Cornell or Folger. The pleasure of being an editor is greatly enhanced by such privileges, and we often feel that if we could get away from the hot, close office of the boomerang and roam around over Scandahoovia and the Bosphorus and mold the policy of the boomerang by telegraph and wear a cork helmet and tight pants, 
we would be far happier. Still, it may be that Whitelaw Reed is no happier with his high-priced wife and his own record of crime than we are in our simplicity here in the wild and rugged West, as we write little epics for our one-horse paper and borrow tobacco of the foreman. It is not all of life to live, nor all of death to die. We should live for a purpose, Mr. Reed, not aimlessly like a blind Indian two hundred miles from the reservation at Christmas tide. Now, Mr. Reed, if you will just tell Mr. Nicholson, when you get back home, that in referring to us as a journalistic pal of Frank Hatton, he has exceeded his authority. We will feel grateful to you, and so will Mr. Hatton. If you don't do it, we shall be called upon to stop the Tribune, and subscribe for Harper's Weekly. This we should dislike to do very much, because we have taken the Tribune for years. We used to take it when the editor stayed at home and wrote for it. Our father used to take the Tribune, too. He is the editor of the Omaha Republican, and needs a good New York paper. But he has quit taking the Tribune. He said he must withdraw his patronage from a paper that is edited by a tourist. All the Nyes will now stop taking the Tribune, and all subscribe for some other dreary paper. We don't know just whether it will be Harper's Weekly or The Shroud. Later. Mr. Reed went through here on Tuesday and told us that he might have been wrong in referring to us as a journalistic pal of Frank Hatton, and in fact did not know that the Tribune had said so. He simply told Nicholson to kind of generally go for the administration and turn over a great man every morning with his scathing pen and probably Nicholson had kind of run out of great men and tackled the North American Indian fighter of the boomerang. Mr. Reed also said, as he rubbed some camphor ice on his nose and borrowed a dollar from his wife to buy his supper here, that when he got back to New York, he was going to write some pieces for the Tribune himself. He was afraid he couldn't trust Nicholson, and the paper had now got where it needed an editor right by it all the time. He said also that he couldn't afford to be wakened up forty times a night to write telegrams to New York, telling the Tribune who to endorse for governor. It was a nuisance, he said, to stand at the center of a way-station telegraph office in his sunflower nightshirt and write telegrams to Nicholson, telling him who to sass the next morning. Once, he said, he telegraphed him to dismember a journalistic pal of Frank Hatton's, and the operator made a mistake. So the next morning the Tribune had a regular old ringtail peeler of an editorial, which planted one of Mr. Reed's special friends in an early grave. So we may know from this that molding the course of a great paper by means of red messages is fraught with some unpleasant features. Always Room at the Top Young man, do not stand lounging on the threshold of the glorious future while the coming years are big with possibilities, but take off your coat and spit on your hands and win the wealth which the world will yield you. You may not be able to write a beautiful poem and die of starvation, but you can go to work humbly as a porter and buy a whisk broom and wear people's clothes out with it, and in five years you can go to Europe in your own special car as the strawberry said to the box, there is always room at the top. Inaccurate 
Once more has Laramie been slandered and traduced. Once more our free and peculiar style has been spoken lightly of and our pride trailed in the dust. Last week the Police Gazette, an illustrated family journal of great merit, appeared with a half-page steel engraving, executed by one of the old masters, representing two Laramie girls on horseback yanking a fly drummer along the street at a gallop, because he tried to make a mash on them and they did not yearn for his love. There are two or three little errors in the illustration, to which we desire to call the attention of the Eastern reader of Michelangelo masterpieces that appear in the Police Gazette. First, the saloon, or hurdy-gurdy, shown in the left foreground, is not the exact representation of any building in Laramie, and the doby pig-pens and a-tents of which the town seems to be composed are not true to nature. Again, the streets do not look like the streets of Laramie. They look more like the public thoroughfares of Thai City or Jerusalem. Then the girls do not look like Laramie girls, and we are acquainted with all the girls in town, and consider ourselves a judge of those matters. The girls in this illustration look too much as though they had mingled a great deal with the people of the world. They do not have that shy, frightened, and pure look that they ought to have. They appear to be the kind of girls that one finds in the crowded metropolis under the gaslight, yearning to get acquainted with someone. There are several features of the illustration which we detect as erroneous, and among the rest we might mention, casually, that the incident illustrated never occurred here at all. Aside from these little irregularities above named, the picture is no doubt a correct one. We realize fully that times get dull even in New York sometimes, and it is necessary occasionally to draw on the imagination. But the Gazette artist ought to pick up some hard town like Cheyenne and let us alone a while. The Western Chap Few know how voraciously we go for anything in the fashion line. Many of our exchanges are fashion magazines, and nothing is read with such avidity as these highly pictorial aggregations of literature. If there are going to be any changes in the male wardrobe this winter, it behooves us to know what they are. We intend to do so. It is our high prerogative and glorious privilege to live in a land of information. If we do not provide ourselves with a few, it is our own fault. Man has spanned the ocean with an electric cable and runs his streetcars with another cable that puts people out of their misery as quick as a giant powder caramel in a man's chest protector under certain circumstances. Science has done almost everything for us, except to pay our debts without leaning toward repudiation. We are making rapid strides in the line of progression. That is, the scientists are. Every little while you can hear a scientist burst a basting thread off his overalls while making a stride. It is equally true that we are marching rapidly along in the line of fashion. Change, unceasing change, is our war cry and he who undertakes to go through the winter with the stage costumes of the previous winter will find, as Voltaire once said, that it is a cold day. We look with great concern upon the rapid changes which a few weeks have made. The full voluptuous swell and broad cincha of the chaparajo have given place to the tight pantalets with feathers on them, conveying the idea that they cannot be removed until death 
or an earthquake shall occur. Chaps, as they are vulgarly called, deserve more than a passing notice. They are made of leather with fronts of dogskin, with the hair on. The inside breadths are of calf or sheepskin, made plain, but trimmed down the side seam with buckskin bugles and oil-tanned bric-a-brac of the time of Michelangelo Kelly. On the front are plain pockets used for holding the ball program and the pop. The pop is a little design in nickel and steel, which is often used as an inhaler. It clears out the head and leaves the nasal passages and phrenological chart out on the sidewalk, where pure air is abundant. Chaps are rather attractive while the wearer is on horseback or walking toward you, but when he chasses and all waltz to places, you discern that the seat of the garment has been postponed sine die. This, at first, induces a pang in the breast of the beholder. Later, however, you become accustomed to the barren and perhaps even stern demeanor of the wearer. You gradually gain control of yourself and master your raging desire to rush up and pin the garment together. The dance goes on. The elite take an adult's dose of ice cream and other refreshments. The leader of the mad waltz glides down the hall with his medieval chaps, swishing along as he sails. The violin gives a last shriek. The superior fiddle rips the robe of night wide open with a parting bzzzt. The mad frolic is over, and five dollars have gone into the dim and unfrequented freight depot of the frog pond environed past. End of section 12